I am excited about what God is doing in our day and age. I really am. I don't like what's going on around me, but I know it's going to be a, a catapult for God to do something great in our midst. I really do believe that. Uh, as I get started this morning, this is going to be a different kind of message. I'm just going to warn you up front. Today is introduction. Not as much scripture, but a lot of introduction for what we're going to talk about the next four weeks. And so I trust that you just hang on as I'm going to do a lot of reading this morning. I'm going to do something a little bit different than I normally do in that I'm going to read some excerpts from different things I've been reading over the last couple of weeks. And I don't know about you, but there's a lot of turmoil around us, right? A lot of crazy, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of I don't know what's happening next, a lot of just emotions that get us all up and down, up and down like a roller coaster of everything that's going on around us. And I remember when I was just a little kid. I'm, I, well, let me just say this. I remember when I was younger. I was never really little. Um, I remember when I was younger. And I remember being a little kid and, and, and hearing the words of growing up in church. And I, I remember I, I grew up in a church from the time I remember walking and being in church and being a part of everything that was going on. And I remember just as a young child hearing, oh, the Lord is coming soon. Any minute, any day now, any week, any month. Just in the very near future, God is coming. And He's going to, you know, the trumpet's going to blow and, and it's all going to happen. Anybody been hearing this for 30, 40 years now? Right. You know, uh, for hundreds of years, men, preachers, organizations, ministries have looked at their current circumstances. They look around at everything that's going on and have made assumptions that they were living in the last days. Lots of people have claimed that. Lots of generations have claimed that. And some have even gone so far as to predict the coming of the Lord only to have been wrong. You know, uh, so I decided to do a little bit of looking this week and say, how many people have actually claimed that Jesus is going to come on a certain day? Well, you, you might not be shocked, but over 200 different people have claimed that they have actually set a date that Jesus was going to come to this earth on a certain day. Over 200 different predictions. And so far, every one of them have been wrong. You remember the one just a few years ago? Uh, May 21st, 2011, sundown in Jerusalem, it's Judgment Day. Harold Camping was absolutely convinced. And by the way, this wasn't the first time Harold Camping said this. Several times he predicted that Jesus was going to come at a certain time, at a certain place, on a certain day, and he was wrong. Over and over, we got people who may be a little bit more well-known, like Hal Lindsey or Jack Van Impey, and others who've made predictions of when Jesus Christ was going to come. In fact, as I was looking through this entire list of all the people, over 200 different people, groups, organizations, ministries that said that they, Jesus was going to come on this certain day, all been wrong, but some of them haven't, aren't wrong yet. I'll just let you know, they're not wrong yet, because uh, some of them aren't predicted until 2000 and... Let me find it here. 2034. Yeah, that's the next key day we're going to have to watch. 2034. John Denton says that Jesus Christ is going to come in 2034. And then to, to, according to the Church of Blair, the human race will probably be terminated at 328 a.m. Soho, England time in 2047 on September 14th. Talk about details! They got an inside red phone that just picks up. I mean, like Batman has it, calls Jesus. Yeah, you got it on this date? Yeah, we're okay, we're good. It's crazy that God, over the years, has made it so clear in His Word that no man knows the day nor the hour, not even the Son of Man. 
right? So we don't know when Jesus Christ is going to come. But what are the circumstances that have led these people to believe that they were living in the last days? I want to look at just a couple passages of Scripture. And as I said, fair warning, I'm going to do some reading this morning. I'm not going to get as much into Scripture because I'm going to lay a foundation for the next several weeks. But if you would take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 just for a moment. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And as you are turning there, let me just take a moment and pray. I want God to work in our hearts because I really, this message that, and these messages that I'm preparing over the next several weeks are really speaking deeply to me. I want God to use them, as I do in every message, but I really want God to use them to challenge us. You know, there's so much worry and so much concern that, well, you know, the church is going to have to shut its doors. Let me just tell you, the church facility may shut its doors, but the church is not going to die. We have to understand that the church is alive and well. The church goes out to the supermarket and to the grocery stores and to the gas stations and to the neighbors and the friends and so forth. The church is not dying. The church is very much alive. The facilities may be closing up. And they're closing up all around us. But that ought to be a reminder to us that God is alive and well. And just because we may not be coming to a building does not mean that the church cannot thrive outside this building. And it must thrive outside this building. If nothing else, these days that we're living in ought to encourage us and really kick us in the pants to move us forward to get something done for the cause of Christ. We ought not be ashamed. God's Word says He's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Amen? He says, all power is given unto you and you shall be my witnesses. He's given us the power. He's given us... The, the, the ability to have boldness and courage and not to be given in by fear. And we ought to be doing something about it. And I hope these next several weeks really just spur us to go forward for the cause of Christ like never before in this day and age that we're living in. But before we look at this, let's just look to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You once again for the opportunity to look at Your Word. Lord, I pray that we would be open to what Your Spirit is speaking to us. Lord, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth might be Your words and not my own. I pray, Lord, that they might come out with clarity of thought and speech. And I ask, God, that You would be exalted high, and Lord, that we would take what we hear this morning and be challenged to go out and do something about it, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we that are here under the listening of Your Word, God, that we would not just put it off as being challenged, but Lord, that we would take it personally and do something about it, that we'd act upon the very things that we are hearing. God, speak to us, starting with me. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, there are many reasons to believe that we may very well be living in the last days. And as I said, I'm going to give you a little bit of fair warning. I'm going to do some reading this morning, because I want this week to kind of just be a foundation to where we're going with this. And over these next several weeks, I hope, I pray, I am going to continue to pray that God ignites our church to have a fire underneath us to go out and see people come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. I hope that we don't walk out of here and say, well, man, pastor's all charged up today. I hope we go out and do something about it. I hope that all of us will just look for opportunities and say, God, use me to turn someone else's heart towards you. Uh, we have relationships, as we say, to invite people to the most important relationship, right? That's Jesus Christ. That's why we have friends and neighbors and co-workers, so that we can introduce Jesus to them. And so I hope that we'll do that. So I come across this article in the last week by a fellow by the name of Gary Frazier, and it's simply entitled, Reasons I Believe We Are in the Last Days. And so I want to read this article, I want to make some comments as we go about it, but before I do that, I want us to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-9. through 
says, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, leaders, uh, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. For this of this sort are those who are creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various laws, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And now as James and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapprove concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as all theirs also was. Question, is there any doubt that we're seeing this more and more in the day that we live? It's all around us. Everywhere we look, we got politicians who are claiming to have, be Christians, claiming to go to church, and yet they're making policies that are directly contrary to the Word of God. They're calling evil good and good evil. It's happening every day all around us. There are people who are twisting the truth and contorting the truth to, to, to make it basically become a gospel of their own choosing, a, 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 a correctness of their own making, so to speak. And we're seeing these things happen all around us. And uh, lovers of themselves, lovers of money, is that all around us? I mean, there is there only one thing in this world that we're living for? All you just got to look out for number one. As long as number one's taken care of, we're all good. We're all you know all going the right direction. They're all excited about just making the next buck and getting the next best thing that you can have and the accumulating of things and all these things are all around us. I'm not going to sit there and break around every little part of this, but we see this going on all around us. And as we come into chapter four. Verses 3 and 4 says this, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Uh, just this week I had a conversation with somebody who says, Well, that's not your job as a preacher. You, you know, not, He was talking to a pastor friend of mine and says, Well, your job is not to convict. And he said, Absolutely not. It's the Holy Spirit's good job. So let Him do it. Well, wait a minute. As a preacher, we're to exposit the Word of God and bring it to life. And if the Holy Spirit uses it to convict your heart, then you need to respond to it. If you don't want to be convicted, if you don't want the Holy Spirit to challenge you, if you don't want the Holy Spirit to change you, if you don't want to be like Jesus Christ, then why bother coming to church? Why, uh, why bother opening the book? And I was just, I was just like, wow, I, I can't believe that somebody would not want to be challenged by the Word of God. But see, we want a, a gospel of our own choosing. The world that we live in, we don't want, you know, I don't want to do anything that, that, that uh, might make me feel bad. I don't want to do anything that might, uh, you know, hurt their feelings. And I'm just sorry, that's not the Word of God. God's Word says it is a stumbling block. It does confront. It does probe the conscience. It does sear. And we have to be open to let the Holy Spirit work in our hearts and our lives in a way that it would impact us for the glory of God. Amen? If we're not here to be challenged by the Word of God, what are we here for? The bottom line is this is why God gave us His Word so that we can draw close to Him, understand what His plans and purposes for us are, and then act on them. And so, we're living in a day and age where people don't want to hear the truth. So it says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But he says, But you be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. I just have to say, I'm being honest with myself, and I'm preaching to myself right, right this moment. It says endure affliction. I have not endured affliction. I'm just telling you, some of you might get upset with me for something I say. That's not affliction. I'm sorry. We have not endured persecution as a church in our generation. 
We're going to talk about that a little bit later, but the reality is we have it so easy and so good in America. We can do whatever we want, whenever we want, concerning the Word of God, concerning church, and if somebody doesn't like it, that's okay. They're going to go their separate ways, but we can still come back. None of us have ever had to face a gunpoint, you know, are you going to recant your faith? None of us have had to do that here. We have it easy. But I fear that the day is going to come that we will not have it easy, and if our mind is not made up, we're going to give in to the world and what they want from us. We better determine right here, right now, that I'm going to stand on the truth of God's Word, regardless of what anyone else thinks or feels, and I'll let the, let the results come as God would have them to come. Our minds need to be made up now more than ever. Things are not going to get easier, and that's okay. We don't want hardship, right? We said many times, we get in our car and we say, God, keep us safe. We're going to go on the icy roads. God, keep us getting from getting in an accident. Nothing wrong with that. But the reality is we want a safe life. God may not be calling us to a safe life. I think often, you say, I'm 48 years old. Half my life is gone. I probably have less days in front of me than what I have behind us, like many of us. But, you know, I start thinking about what about my children? What about my grandchildren? What about them? Well, the bottom line is we have this day to give to God. And they're going to have a day to choose for themselves whether they will stand for God or give into what the world has for them. And I'm challenging you guys, you children, you teenagers, you grandkids, to stand up for what you know is right. Stand up for what you know is in God's Word and let the chips fall as they will. So we get into this article written by Gary Fraser, Reasons I Believe We're in the Last Days. I thought it was a good article. I'll remind you, as I get to number four, you may not like what it says, but I think if you think honest and be honest about it in what you hear, you'll say that he's right. But number one, first is the existence of the nation of Israel. The Word of God is replete with promises regarding the regathering and return of the Jewish people to their traditional homeland. This tiny strip of land lying between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River is surrounded by Muslim countries on the north, south, and east. Belongs to God's chosen people and to no one else. Even a casual look of Scripture supports this, and serious study of the same validates it beyond question. That is, if one accepts the Scripture as the Word of God. So the reality is, God's Word is clear. God's Word is clear that His hand is upon Israel. And when you think about it, Israel is such a tiny little country. I mean, think about it. It's not, it's not a huge place. Demographically, it's just a tiny strip of land. And yet everybody on every side is always trying to get at the heart of it. And yet God has blessed this tiny little country... The mineral wealth there and, the, and the, the, the treasures that are in the earth there are just unbelievable. I have almost every client, I mean, it's just an, an incredible piece of property. And everybody wants it. And yet God's hand is upon it. Over and over we watch God doing what only God can do in preserving that little country. It says, the very existence of Israel today is a miracle in and of itself. Without a doubt, nothing in history compares with this remarkable fulfillment of God's promises to the Jewish people that they will return to their land in the last days. And on May 14, 1948, was the most historical and biblically significant day in the world history since the first century in Jesus Christ Himself. Think about it. The existence of Israel in their land is only going to bring in the requirement of God's coming to earth. And when you think about that, that's exciting. That's exciting. We ought to be excited that God's at work. I don't know the day, don't know the hour, but I know that God is at work. How much more exciting can that be? That God is doing a work. And for the first time, we have a, we had a president that moved the, the, uh, 
uh, the, I can't remember what it's called now. Back to, back to Jerusalem. And uh, what, what, how exciting is that? Yeah, what's it called? Embassy, thank you. I couldn't think of the word. Brought the embassy back. You know, everybody promised to do it, but he did it. What an exciting thing to see Israel coming together and what God is going to do through that. I don't know the timing of it, but I know that God's at work. Number two, the return and continuing rise of the ancient Roman Empire, known today as the European Union, or as former New York Times writer T.R. Reid called it, the United States of Europe. When I first read the article, I thought to myself, that sounds odd. Why would anybody call it the United States of Europe? This is not Europe. This is the United States of America. But it's kind of funny that just last week, I was listening to some commentary on the radio, and you know what they were talking about? American politicians trying to model everything we do after what's taking place in Europe. Isn't that crazy? That I'm, I'm reading this article, and all of a sudden I watch it, or listen to a documentary, and they're talking about making everything like Europe. We're trying to get to the one-world currency, and we're trying to get to the socialistic government, and you know the betterment of all, and you know helping, you know stifling the wealthy, and to give up, bring up the poor, and bring everything the same. Trying to, and what the author was saying the other day in the article that I was listening to was that we're trying to make everything here in the United States like what's taking place in Europe. We're not Europe. We have our own history, our own, uh, you know past and our own future that we're that we're building here in America and you know the men who fought and and died for our freedoms we're not Europe we're America and yet the writer calls it the former uh, this former writer for uh, New York Times calls it the United States of the Year but here's what he says the ancient prophets foresaw not only the destruction of Jerusalem and the subsequent scattering of the Jewish people into all the nations of the world they also saw the breakup of the Roman Empire and its rebirth in the last days. Daniel's chapters 7 and 9 are without a doubt the most accurate source of the Bible for the prophetic key to understanding end time events. An understanding of this prophetic passage in conjunction with a working knowledge of world history will provide any interested inquirer a vivid picture of what to expect from Europe in the last days. Today we have a revived form of this ancient Roman Empire that is flexing its muscles on the world scene, especially with regards to Israel and the Middle East. This is something I did not know is what I'm about to tell you. It says, while there are only 25 member nations in the European Union, only 10, only 25, only the first 10, which is Holland, Luxembourg, Belgium, France, Italy, Germany, Finland, Denmark, England, and Greece enjoy full membership status with the remaining of those 25 countries being associate members. And here's what he says, it's glaringly clear from Scripture that the shift of the world focus is back to the lands of the Bible and ancient history in the last days. And here's what he says that I did not know. If you overlay those ten countries on top of the Roman Empire, it's almost a perfect match. Coincidence? No. God is bringing things together. And you're seeing things happen in the Middle East as never before. Number three, there's a resurgence of Russia. It was on June 12, 1987, when then-President Ronald Reagan challenged Communist leader Mikhail Gorbachev to tear down the wall. Communism collapsed, and the wall did come down in 1989. However, Russia did not die, nor did she lose her aspirations for world domination. The leadership started dressing more Western. Democracy became a common word in the Russian vocabulary. And outward changes seemed to be taking place. However, their heart did not change. Today we're seeing a resurgence of Russian influence and power. Russia is on the move once again, and this is no surprise to students of Scripture. He says, Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 predict an invasion of Israel in the last days led by Russia and a coalition of Muslim nations. While the Bible uses the ancient names of these geographically locatable nations, 
We easily identify them by their modern names. Is it coincidence that Russia is providing the technology to Iran to build nuclear bombs, which they have vowed to use to wipe off Israel from the map? Make no mistake, communism lives in a new suit. I found that interesting when I read that, and I thought, I don't understand a lot of this stuff. I really don't. I hear bits and pieces, as you do, bits and pieces. But, you know, I was just yesterday, just yesterday, in world news, the uh, Iranian top leader said he wants the U.S. to lift every sanction off of them, otherwise he will use his nuclear capabilities to do damage. That was yesterday. How does a little country like Iran have the technology and the wherewithal to produce nuclear bombs, which they will threaten to use, unless somebody helps them? You see, it's not coincidence. Satan is alive and well, but I have to know this, that God is even more alive and well. God's in control, right? That's why we don't have to fear. We don't have to worry about all these things. Fourth reason is this, and this is one that will make some of you upset. Maybe it's because you may not understand it. Maybe it's because you do and you don't like it. Maybe you don't agree with it. But here's the thing. This fourth one kind of got me upset at first when I first read it. But as I more read it, I thought, you know what? He's dead on. He's right. Here it is. The fourth reason why I believe that it's coming near the end, he says, is America. Yes, the land of the free and home of the brave. I believe America is a real indicator of the lateness of the hour for several reasons. Benjamin Franklin called it the Great American Experiment. This experiment that allowed humankind to worship as they choose without fear of government intervention. This experiment that fostered creativity and capitalism in a free market economy. The experiment for which our founding fathers and millions since have and have been willing to die for. This great experiment is under attack from without and more dangerously so from within. And as I read that, I thought, wow. Because he goes on and says this, Communist has failed in almost every country in the world, yet flourishes in America today. That really challenged me. I mean, how can communism be here? How can socialism be in our very midst? He says, how can this be? The answer really is quite simple. He says, we the people have allowed our schools to fill the minds of our youth with socialism. We have permitted teachers and tenured professors to rail against our great land uh, and our lifestyle while promoting perceived benefits of socialist and communist philosophical ideas. We have bought into Darwinism and changed the truth into lies. Now many years later, the students have become judges, professional politicians, the media talking heads, and teachers and even presidents who openly propagate these falsities. And sadly, most Americans do not even recognize what has happened. As I started thinking about that, I thought, wow, it sounds really awful. Awfully contemplative, really, when you think about the fact that he's right. When we look at our most famous liberal universities, are they promoting conservative values? Are they promoting conservative Christianity? No. You think of every Ivy League college almost, almost every one of them without fail. How, what was the purpose when they started? <laughs> they were started as seminaries. They were training pastors to do the work of the ministry so that they could build churches that would follow God. There's hardly any Ivy League college in America today that is standing on truth. They're as liberal as they come. I think of some of these universities out west, good night, they're bastions of liberalism. 
And I find it interesting that some of these universities that promote such liberal ideas, just like he said, they're who's training the next generation in our public schools. And I thank God for those Christians who are standing up and teaching. And I would say this, parents, you need to be involved in your kids' education. You need to be there. I appreciate when we were in Indianapolis, the principal had an open-door policy. He said, Ken, anytime you as parents or any parents wants to come in and see what's going on in the classroom, you have full support. You're welcome to do that. And we did. We went in there. In fact, I worked in the public school system. I appreciated the people. Many of them were believers. That's not the case in every situation. But parents, you need to, be, you need to know what your kids are being taught. Because that is being the next generation. And it's amazing how you can go to different parts of the country, and this part of the country is considered conservative, and this part of the country is considered liberal. And you look at the educational systems, and guess what? They're promoting the ideas of socialism, the ideas of communism, the ideas of welfare for all, and not making people work for what they have. And God says, if a man doesn't work, neither shall he eat. You're called to work. You're you're called to be industrious. You're called to be a leader of your home. And yet there are the world that's promoting getting a free handout. It doesn't work that way. He said, America, yes, the land of the free and home of the brave is turning. And we have to wonder, are we nearer now than ever before at the coming of the Lord? One more part of this article I'll read. He says, amazingly, our founding fathers saw the potential dangers and sought through our Constitution and Bill of Rights to protect us. These sacred documents, however, are being twisted, corrupted, and interpreted in ways our founding fathers never intended. These very documents meant to grant freedom are being used as weapons against Americans. I find it so ironic that you can have two people who both claim to be a constitutional attorney, and yet they view the the Constitution as giving freedom for abortion, and they say, no, we're we're all about life and the sanctity of, of, of marriage and the sanctity of life. Both Constitutional attorneys. How can we be so diametrically opposite from each other? It's happening all around us. People twisting the truth for a lie. And calling bad good and good bad all around us. He says, well, I would not dare speak for God Almighty. There are two things I know God has never failed to judge in history. The first is the murder of alive yet unborn children. We, the people, have allowed the murder of more than 40 million of God's children upon the altar of convenience under the guise of women's choice. It's not choice, it's murder. It's murder. And we don't like to think about it, we don't like to talk about it, but that's exactly what it is. He says, second, God has never failed to judge any nation or people that have accepted and promoted homosexuality. While hordes of people try to convince us the Word of God is an irrelevant book, we know better. God has called this unnatural. In addition, He consistently forbids this type of behavior throughout Scripture. And will America be the first nation in history to survive this perversion of morals and marriage? He says, I doubt it. He says, so why do you believe that we are living in these last days? He said, for these reasons. But he also says this. He says, uh, what I have cited is only the tip of the iceberg. And it was the tip of the iceberg that sank the Titanic. I thought to myself, wow, dead on. Tip of the iceberg is what sank the Titanic. You know, I don't know when Christ is going to come. Matthew 24, verse 36 reminds us that no man knows the day nor the hour of Christ's return. But I do know this. I want to be found faithful when He does come. I want to be found faithfully standing on His Word when He does come. 
I want to be found faithful in obedience when He does come. And I personally do believe that we are living in the last days. I don't know when Jesus Christ is going to come, but I do believe we are nearer than ever before. But if He were to come tomorrow, will we be found ready and obedient? Over these next couple weeks, I'm going to bring into light what's taking place in this world. I don't know if we're going to face persecution, but I do know this. Every country that has ever faced persecution, one thing has been the result. Christianity thrives in the face of persecution. So if God allows our country to take the step towards persecution, I know this, that God will be with us. Amen? He'll be with us. He's not going to desert us. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So I know that He is with us. But if He's with us, I also know that He'll fight with us. But we're not called to give in. We're not called to give up. We're not called to quit. We're, God did not give us armor to protect our backs to run and hide. He gave us every bit of armor that you read of in Ephesians to go forward in battle. He did not give us a backplate. He gave us a breastplate. We're to go forward and fight the good fight. And I do know this, that if persecution comes, let it come. I don't look forward to it, I don't want it, but let it come. And we have to have our minds up that we're going to stay the battle, we're going to stay the course, we're going to do what's right, and we're going to fight. Not for ourselves, because there's nothing in and of ourselves to fight for. We're fighting for God. We are His soldiers, we're going to promote the Gospel, because that's the only thing that's going to change anything. Right? It's the only thing. And even though the doors of our churches may close, the church is still alive. That's what we have to remember. So over these next couple weeks, I'm going to bring up some things that maybe you did not know. There was a man by the name of Diedrich Bonhoeffer that wrote a book called Life Together, and this was what he taught and preached while he was in jail, in prison. And we're going to look at some things. And basically, the title of the message this morning, uh, Preparing for Living in Days of Difficulty. I think we're going to be living in some difficult days. I really do. I'm excited about it because God's at work. I don't want the hardship. I mean, none of us does. But if it comes, boy, it's just it's going to be exciting to see what God does in the midst of it all. Right? So here's the deal. Let me tell you a little bit about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. There was a man born February 4th, 1906, and died April 9th, 1945, at the age of 39. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor, theologian, anti-Nazi dissident, and key founding member of the Confessing Church. His writings on Christianity's role in the secular world have become widely influential, and his book, The Cost of Discipleship, has become a dis- described as a modern classic. Victoria Barnett, in Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Resistance and Execu- Execution, wrote this, Even before the war, German opponents of Hitler had considered overthrowing the Nazi regime. The first unrealized plan to overthrow Hitler was during the Sudeten Crisis in 1938. A successful coup, however, depended upon the support of key German military figures. Their readiness to take such risks diminished with the German victories in Poland and on the Western Front. This was maddening to the civilian conspirators like Dahanani, who was distrusted of the military leaders and condemned their reluctance to move decisively against Hitler. German resistant groups hoped to convince their allied contacts of their seriousness and win foreign support for overthrow of the Nazi regime. In October of 1940, Dietrich Bonhoeffer began work as an agent for military intelligence. Imagine that. A theologian, a pastor, working as an agent for the government. 
in intelligence. Supposedly using his ecumenical context, in other words, the pastors that he knew, the churches that he knew of around those countries, to help the cause of the Reich. In reality, he used his context to spread information about the resistance movement. In trips to Italy, Switzerland, and Scandinavia in 1941 and 42, he informed them of resistant activities and tried in turn to regain foreign support for the German resistance. As I was reading this book, I literally had tears coming down my eyes. My wife was looking at me. She was, why are you crying? I couldn't get it out. I'm just, let me just tell you a little bit about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In the gray dawn of April, in the April day in 1945, in the concentration camp at Flossenburg, shortly before it was liberated by the Allied forces, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed by special order of Heinrich Himmler. On Easter Monday, 1953, the pastors of Bavaria unveiled the, in the church in Flossenburg a tablet with this simple inscription, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a witness of Jesus Christ among his brethren, born February 4, 1906 in Breslau, Died April 9, 1945, Flossenburg. For innumerable Christians in Germany, on the continent, in England, and in America, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's death has been a contemporary confirmation of Tertullian's dictum, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. For his life and death and his writings, which throb with the simple downright faith of one who has met Jesus Christ and accepted the ultimate consequences of that encounter in the world which he defined as a sphere of concrete responsibility given to us by and in Jesus Christ, these are still a living witness in the ecumenical church which he served. Bonhoeffer was born in a family of seven children in Braslau and was now East Germany. He grew up, however, in Berlin, where his father, a noted physician, was first to occupy the chair of psychiatry in Germany. From his father, as he wrote in his last letter from prison, he learned what characterizes all that he wrote, an insistent realism a turning away from the phraseological to the real. And I quote, For him, Christianity could never be merely intellectual theory, doctrine divorced from life, or mystical emotion. But always it must be responsible, obedient action, the discipleship of Christ in every situation of concrete everyday life, personal and public. And it was this that led him in the end to prison and death. Six years before his imprisonment by the Gestapo, he had written, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. How often do we think about giving our life for the cause of Christ? How often are we just so, you know, we're worried about what everyone else is going to say, what everyone else is going to feel, what everyone else is going to think if we tell them that we're a Christian. If we say, hey, I'm going to stand on the truth of God's Word. We're so afraid of what everyone else thinks and feels that we often say nothing. And I love the way he says, he says, when God calls a man, he bids him come and die. And it may not be a physical death, but it is definitely a spiritual death in that we are to die to self and let Christ be seen in us. Are we willing to live that life? Are we willing to be different than the world that we live in because we stand on the principles and the authority of God's Word? We need more Dietrich Bonhoeffers in this world. Amen? Amen. We need more men and more women and more teenagers and more young adults and more children who say, I will give my life to Christ regardless of what the outcome may be. We need to stand up for truth. I love this. When I was going on here, I won't read all of it, but I want to come back to another page of it in uh, verses, uh, on page 10 here. There's so much here. He says, Already, Bonhoeffer was deeply involved in the events of his dictator-dominated country. Through Hans von Donnenny, the husband of his sister Christelle, 
he learned something of the crisis that was centering in General Fritz and secret plans for our overthrow of Hitler being made by General Beck and others. The men who felt all the force in the pacifist position and weighed the cost of discipleship concluded in the depth of his soul that to withdraw from those who were participating in this political and military resistance would be irresponsible and cowardice and flight from reality. He said, not as his friend Beth says, that he believed that everybody must act as he did, but from where he was standing, he could see no possibility of retreat into any sinless, righteous, pious refuge. The sin of respectable people reveals itself in flight from responsibility. And he saw that sin falling upon him and he took his stand. Here he acted in accord with his fundamental view of ethics, that a Christian must accept his responsibility as a citizen of this world where God has placed him. Did you catch that? He acted in accord with his fundamental view of ethics that a Christian must accept his responsibility as a citizen of this world where God has placed him. What is our responsibility in this world where God has us? Is it just to shrink in fear? Is it just to give up because, well, I don't want to rock the boat? Or are we to stand up for what we know is right? It's not going to be easy. I I can't wait. There's a couple other quotes that are going to come up I'm going to share next week. It's amazing that we need a man like this. We need to be a man like this in this day and age that we live. Let me read one last page. It says, From then on, his life was devoted to tasks assigned by the confessing church and the resistance. During this time until his death, he devoted his spare moments to the writing of his ethics, which he regarded as a special contribution he could make as a theologian. Moving about the country, preaching and speaking to clandestine groups since he was prohibited from teaching, writing, or remaining in Berlin, acting as a courier between various groups, he wrote whole chapters of his ethics in the Benedictine Abbey and Etel and other temporary refuges. But on that day, in April 1943, a blow fell. On April 8th, Bonhoeffer, with his sister Christelle and her husband, Hans von Dunnany, were arrested and incarcerated in Tegel a military prison where he remained until October 8, 1944. During this time, the guards were friendly to this strong pastor and secretly took him to the cells of despairing prisoners to minister to them. They preserved his papers, essays, and poems, and even established a complete courier service to the family and friends outside the prison. Bonhoeffer always seemed to be, this is one of his co-prisoners said this, Bonhoeffer always seemed to me to spread an atmosphere of happiness and joy over the least incident, and profound gratitude for the mere fact that he was alive. He was one of the very few persons I ever met for whom God was real and always near. On Sunday, April 8, 1945, Pastor Bonhoeffer conducted a little service of worship and spoke to us in a way that went, went to the heart of all of us. He found just the right words to express the spirit of our imprisonment. The thoughts and the resolutions they had brought to us, he hardly ended his last prayer when the door opened and two civilians entered. They said, Pastor, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. That had only one meeting for all prisoners, the gallows. We said goodbye to him. He took me aside. This in the end, but for me it was the beginning of life. The next day he was hung in Flossenburg. Yesterday uh, I was over here at the office and I just decided to Google videos on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And there was a movie made about his life called Come Before Winter. And as I was watching it, I watched it to the very end where the men came into the room that he was staying in. He had just concluded a service with the six or eight people in his presence. And he said, you know, bottom line is, 
They knew that when the door knocked and the prisoner came in, that only meant one thing, the gallows. And the gallows were just across the front yard. And uh, I, I think next week I'll show a video of the layout so you can see it. But you can see him walking across and, and, and going to where the gallows were already set up for anybody that went against uh, the Gestapo. History tells us that when he was ushered out of that room, they brought him next door into another little room where there was a sarcastic soldier sitting at a desk and says, you won't be needing those. Go ahead and take your clothes off. And at that moment, Diedrich Bonhoeffer just simply took his shirt off, let his pants fall to the ground. He picked them up and put them on the desk of that soldier sitting in front of him. He says all of it. Dropped his drawers. Laid them on the table. And then as he is about to turn, he says, you won't need your glasses either where you're going. And he took his glasses off and laid them on the desk. And he walked out down a long path and went to the gallows. And at that moment, the door dropped and he hung and gave his life. I was listening to that video and watching it. And a quote came across it that I thought was really good. He says, Hitler cannot kill me. The hour of my death will be prescribed by the living God Himself. I thought to myself, how often are we worried about what everyone else may think of us? Oh, they'll get upset with me. They'll think I'm crazy. They'll think we're weird. We'll think we're weird. And we just say nothing when we have the hope of Jesus Christ living within us. I think we are going to head towards difficult days. That's just my opinion. I could be wrong. I pray I'm wrong. But I think we are headed towards difficult days. I don't think things are going to get easier. I don't think they're meant to be easy. But God's Word says, I've not given you the spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. He says, I've given you boldness. Acts 1 says, but you shall receive power after this the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses. The reality is we have what it takes to go forward. And he tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Amen? Do we believe that? Or are we afraid of what someone else may think? I get fearful at times. There are times I say, man, I should just take a moment and just open my mouth and talk. And we don't do it. Why? Fear. Don't have the words. Well, is God true or is He a liar? He said, I'll give you the words to say. I'll give you the tools you need if we're but willing to open our mouth. I hope that over these next few weeks that this me- these messages will stir us for God to work in and through us to bring people to Jesus. I believe the church is alive and well. It's different. Even when everyone keeps talking about, you know, we're going to have to do things differently because the, you know, we're not doing fellowships anymore. We don't, we're not doing dinners and we're not doing this. And everyone's got to be careful. We don't want to spread the COVID. And, you know, and, you know, the churches are shutting their doors all over. The church building has shut its door. The church is not done. The church is going to go forward. Do you believe that? He says the church, the, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church will go forward because the church is you and I. The church is you and I, and the church is going to go talk to the neighbor, and the friends, and the co-workers, and the relatives. The church is alive and well. The building may close. So be it. So be it. Is your mind made up? Is your mind made up that you're going to do what God asks you to do? 
I want to also highlight these next four weeks as we think about how good we've got it. There's a world that does not have it so good. If you have your Sunday morning bulletin, there is a sheet in it. If you, if you have it, just glance at it real quick. Do you realize there are 50-some countries that are on the world watch list where it is really extremely difficult to be a follower of Christ? We don't have a glimpse. We don't have a clue of how easy we've got it. But just for a moment this morning, read through that. North Korea, number one. Afghanistan, number two. Somalia, number three. Libya, number four. Five, Pakistan. Eritrea, number six. Yemen, number seven. Iran, number eight. Nigeria, number ten. India, or India, number ten. Nigeria, number nine. India, ten. In these top ten countries, to openly share the gospel could mean definite death. I've got friends in India right now. The the government is so strongly protective of their Hindu base that anybody who even presents a different idea is arrested, beaten, some killed. Even Christians that I've known for years say they are being very careful right now. Congo is on there. My brother from Congo, it's hard there to be a Christian. Kenya, you see them in the news almost regularly anymore. We're going to be looking at some of these. But on the side of that paper that's in your bulletins, what can you do about it? Learn about them. Pray for them. Talk about them. Encourage them. Over the next several weeks, I'll be giving you some some ways that you can get a letter of encouragement to them. But folks, I don't think things are going to get a whole lot easier And that's okay. It's okay. You don't have to be afraid. Life Together is a compilation of Diedrich Bonhoeffer's sermons recounting fellowship with the underground seminary and the underground church during the Nazi years of Germany. In the book, he just gives simple advice of how to live in difficult days. We're going to be looking at that over the next several weeks. But I think this is where it starts. If you know Jesus, if you are a follower of Christ, it starts with a decision. I don't care what anyone else thinks. I'm living for God. I don't care what anyone else thinks. I'm going to do what's right. I don't care what anyone else thinks. I'm going to stand for what I know is truth. But you better have your mind made up. That no matter what, you're going to stand for what's right. I don't know when Christ is going to come, but I do know this. When he does come, I want to be found faithful. I want to be found obedient. And I hope to God we can take as many people with us to heaven when we go one day. Amen? I want to see some people saved. The world's crazy. We expect anything less? It's crazy out there. What are you going to do about it? Nothing. Do what's right.
Stand for what's right. Look for opportunities. And knowing that during these difficult days, God is with us. He's standing beside us. <coughs> is your mind made up? I think it would be good to read some of these stories of others who are going through it. So you can know how to pray for them. And ask God to give you the strength that they've got. Lord, as we come before you, pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. These are indeed some unique days that we're living in. And Lord, my goal this morning is not to make everyone afraid of what's going on. Lord, we should not have fear. We may not like it, God, but we... (laughs) Lord, you've not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power and love and sound mind. And I ask, God, that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, that we, our minds would be made up, that regardless of what takes place around us, we're going to live for the one within us. And I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts. I ask, God, that you would not only challenge us, but change us. God, we need to be changed. I believe that the end is drawing near. But Lord, I could be wrong. You have an opportunity, Lord, to start today. A fresh commitment. A fresh surrender. Of our will to yours, Lord. To share the gospel to walk in obedience, to have boldness and courage in this day that we live in. His heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Just ask for a moment that no one's looking around. There's no room for casual Christianity. This is not a smorgasbord of choices, a little bit of this and not so much of that. Either you're in or you're out. Either you're following or you're not. You've heard the phrase, a half-truth is a whole lie. You can't straddle the fence. You've got to make up your mind. Who are you going to serve? And I'm just going to tell you, as we talk about next week, the community of the body of Christ. We need one another. Desperately, we need one another. Now more than ever, as we see what's taking place around us, let's be committed together. Say, Pastor, God's challenged my heart. Spirit spoke to me. I need to make a stand. I need to have more boldness, more courage. I need more obedience. I need to stand up. Would you pray for me, anyone like that this morning? Yes. All around, yes. Can I just challenge you? All of you that have nodded your head, all of you that have raised your hand, to take a moment and pray. Just to take a moment. Say, God, I'm in. I surrender my will to yours once again, afresh and new. I commit myself to you again, afresh and anew. God, I... I, 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 I want boldness and courage. And Lord, 
Yeah, we need wisdom too and discernment for the world that we live in. We're not trying to make enemies. We're to love our enemies. But we need to love them in truth. moment and say, God, I need your help. I need your spirit to re-energize me, to, re- to speak through me. And our job is to surrender and submit to what God wants to do in and through us. Anyone else say, Pastor, pray for me. God's challenged my heart this morning. Lord Jesus, you know our hearts. And Lord, we don't want lip service. We don't want shallow commitments. Lord, we know that you want our hearts fully committed, fully surrendered, fully obedient. And now, Lord, I pray for each one who raised their hand their heart towards you this morning, Lord, that you would allow us to do just that. Lord, in our flesh, we are weak. In our flesh, Lord, we will fail. So, Lord, we pray you'd help us to claim the scriptures, claim the boldness that you've given to us. Lord, give us wisdom and discernment as we live in this world. Give us boldness like never before. Give us doors of opportunity, God, that we may step through them and point others to you. Lord, be with each and every one of us, Lord, that have made this commitment, Lord, that we might see your hand at work in our midst, Lord. And we'll praise you for it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.